You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To the first episode of Core Curriculum. This is a new show from the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, I'm your host for this episode and, you know, a couple others along the line, but as you'll hear, it'll be a different panel each week with a different facilitator each week. My name is Michael Farmer. I live in Woodstock, Georgia. Joining me today, uh, Christina Bieber-Lake from Wheaton, Illinois. You've heard her on the Christian Feminist Podcast and Christian Humanist Profiles, and once, I think, on the Christian Humanist Podcast with me. How you doing, Christina? I'm doing great. Uh, also joining us from New Bern, North Carolina, is Jay Eldred, whom you've heard on Sectarian Review, although it's been a while. E- maybe? Yeah, um... I know that we recorded some back in the fall. I'm not sure when exactly those episodes dropped. Yeah, he's got a he's got a big stockpile. You can never tell what exactly is going on in sectarian review. <laughs> I think I think my most recent recording was with Christian feminist with the uh, Pratchett episode. Ah, which I didn't listen to, having never read Terry Pratchett. Oh yeah, I heard it. Yeah, I remember that now. Yeah. Well, let me uh, let me briefly tell our listeners what this show is all about. Um, so. Most of our other shows we do kind of quick reads. So even if we're even if we're reading a whole novel or a whole long poem, we do one episode on it. The idea behind core curriculum is that we're going to go very slowly through the great books of the Western canon or whatever, and we're using um, we're using a syllabus or actually two syllabuses from Columbia University's core curriculum program, which is why this is called core curriculum. You can look ahead and see what exactly we're doing, but it kind of doesn't matter because it's going to be a long time before we get to most of them because we are going very slowly. So today we're talking about the first two books of the Iliad, which as uh, as our listeners probably know is 24 books. So you can you can tell it's going to take about three months to get through the Iliad so that we really have time to slow down and um, and talk about as many details of it as we want to. And also, um, because the panel will be different every week, you'll be getting different perspectives. So this will release weekly uh, until, until we're done talking about the Iliad, and then we'll go away for a little while and come back with, I think, The Republic is the next book in the series. So, yeah, uh, hopefully you'll enjoy what we have to say. And if you don't, uh, just wait till next week because there'll be different people saying it. <laughs> For the most part, I'm on that, that episode, too. So if you really hate me, you'll probably want to skip ahead to the third episode. Uh, yeah, so the Iliad. We begin with wrath. I mean, literally. I'm using the Stanley Lombardo translation. I don't know what translation you guys are using. I've got um, the Caroline Alexander and I've got Richmond Lattimore. Oh, wonderful! So we've got three different translations. That'll be that'll be uh, that'll be interesting, I think. I like Lombardo. Lombardo uh, kind of writes like he's writing for an action movie. It's a very 1990s translation of the Iliad. Mm-hmm. But this these are the opening lines in the Lombardo translation. And if you guys would like to read yours, you can. And if you don't, that that's fine too. Rage, sing goddess Achilles' rage, black and murderous, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark, and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds, as Zeus's will was done. Begin with the clash between Agamemnon, the Greek warlord, and godlike Achilles. So. The, the, nice. my point, my, isn't that great? Yeah. My, my point is that Homer is privileging rage. This is a poem about rage as much or more than than it's about a poem about anything else. And I, I just mm-hmm. wondered what you guys see as the point. I mean, is that is that a kind of strange thing to start with for a for a for, for Western literature? Really, not just not just for this one poem. Although you know, it's not like Homer, whoever he was or they were, knew that he was beginning Western literature. But still. Well, I do think it's a strange thing to start with, and every translation that I've ever read starts with that word because the Greek starts with that word, right? And my translation says, wrath, sing goddess of the ruinous wrath of Peleus' son Achilles, that inflicted woes without number upon the Achaeans, hurled forth to Hades many strong souls of warriors, and rendered their bodies prey for the dogs, etc. And, it, you know, 
I wouldn't say it's strange if you thought uh, that war was strange. You know, war is kind of a constant across all historical times. And so with war comes rage. And one of Caroline Alexander's main points is that this is a critique of war and warmongering as much as as it is anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is a martial poem, but a poem that uh, calls martiality into question. Yes. You see that some in the first two books. I think you see it more going forward, and I'm sure we'll talk about that today and next week and for the rest of our lives. I don't know. (laughs) What does your translation read, Jay? My translation starts with, Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son Achilles and its devastation etc etc so my my translation does not begin with wrath or rage so i i stand corrected (laughs) it begins with sing um that's interesting as as far as is it odd or not looking at it from a literary perspective i don't think so um in a way he's telling us what we should be paying attention to because as we get into books one and two we're going to meet a lot of different people with a lot of different ideas and characteristics and we're supposed to remember that the story is at least in theory about achilles Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like i don't know what tv show would be popular right now because i don't watch it watch tv that much but in a long running series you might have characters come in and come in and go out and in my opinion we're supposed to remember that the main focus is on achilles yeah, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an important thing to keep in mind because he is going to disappear very quickly uh, after after this first book. And I think he's in the second one, too. But mm-hmm. um, there's, there's really not a lot of Achilles for a while because he withdraws from the battle because of his rage. Right. Mm-hmm. The other thing that strikes me about his rage, though, is it's it's not the rage you would expect from a warrior. It's the rage of a petulant child. I mean, the, right. the, the wrath we're talking about here at the beginning of the Iliad is the wrath of someone who has his, has the spoils of war taken away from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's not getting what he thinks he deserves. And so he gets really mad. (laughs) Petulant child is exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I I think to modern readers, Achilles kind of comes off like a toddler, right? I mean, he's pitching a fit. So does, so does Agamemnon, um, you know, whom he's responding to, right? They're both Mm -hmm. acting like toddlers. Do either of you know enough about ancient Greek culture to know what we're supposed to think about this? Because it's very difficult as a modern reader to read this and admire Achilles. To to me, when when I read the Iliad and he's not in the first two books, I don't think, but Hector is the person who I admire the most in Mm -hmm. in the poem. Uh, But, I, I mean, do you have a sense of whether that's how Homer's original audience would have read this? Would they have approved of the way Achilles pitches a fit? Maybe in a way, you know, I'm I'm not an expert on on ancient Greek culture, but from what I know and or remember, it was a very shame based culture. Mm-hmm. You know, they they focused on honor and glory. And in fact, um, I was talking earlier this morning with uh, with Victoria Michael about um, and I can never pronounce these Greek names. The the cripple who wasn't good at fighting in book two. Anyway, we were talking about him and why he why he was so hated. And I think it's because he couldn't meet meet those ideals of either beauty or physical strength. And in some way, with Achilles spoils being taken from him, it's undermining his his standing in the in the army there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know much about ancient Greek culture either. I'm an Americanist, contemporary Americanist at that. But what I do know is that it's honor and shame based, just like you were saying, Jay. And so the issue is less the spoils of war per se than um, somebody taking what belongs to me uh, and mm-hmm. dishonoring me, right? Dishonoring right. Me. His pride is wounded. Yeah, his pride is wounded. And on top of that, he feels like the stuff is being taken away from him by someone who doesn't deserve his respect. There's this there's this huge power struggle between him and Agamemnon versus, and, and really it's a it's an it's an argument about to me whether Achilles' natural gifts, his his natural power makes him uh, better than Agamemnon's, who, whose power is largely political. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it certainly is a power struggle. And it certainly does, I think, highlight Agamemnon's kind of choice not to honor the father of this uh, woman who, you know, he is he taken as a spoil of war, right? The father comes and requests for her to be released, and he refuses to do that. And there's no moral conversation about that, right? I mean, that's, of course, one of the shocking things reading this as a feminist is that there's no conversation whatsoever about what the, these women might want or not want. You know, it's just the honor of these men that's mm-hmm. at stake. Yeah, women are... Well, I mean, what my note here says is that Western literature essentially begins with sex slaves. Exactly so. Women viewed as property, um, prizes, uh, and and spoils of war. As ways for men to get revenge on other men. Um, Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. There's a horrible scene in book two where Nestor is trying to rally the troops and he says, uh, and I want every single one of you to rape a Trojan woman, essentially. <laughs> yeah, I remember that part. I was like, oh, my goodness, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, it's just so clear that this is obviously a pawn, right? The women are obviously a pawn in the way that the men have these power struggles, not only uh, against the cultures that they're battling with, of course, because that's always been the case, but even amongst themselves, which is really quite stunning um, when you think about it that they don't even have respect for their own women. And I mean, there without this seems to be an obvious point, but I still think I want to say it. There is probably no ancient epic that's going to pass the Alison Bechdel test. <laughs> huh? I'm, I'm, just, right? I'm just trying to figure, I'm just trying to figure out if, uh, if the Odyssey does. Okay. Maybe, but Penelope doesn't really talk to other women that much. Maybe, maybe her maid. Or what about, um, well, I, I, I know there's a, a really touching scene between Helen and, and Priam uh, in, in books three and four, one of those. Uh, of, of that's the, not the, women talking r- to each other. Right. I'm, I'm trying to remember if there's a scene where she talks to Andromache or Hecuba. Is it Hecuba? Yeah, I don't remember. He- yeah, Hecuba is Priam's wife. But you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this, this book in particular is not one that is interested in women's internal lives as much as we would expect a great work of literature to be. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't expect that from an ancient work, but yeah. But I mean, you might if you'd read once you've read the Odyssey, right? Because I mean, I, I think I think the Odyssey is interested in who Penelope is and and what motivates her and the way she works in a way that certainly that's it's true. not interested in Briseis at all. Yeah, no, that's really true. And especially, I mean, Penelope is is um, you know um, a royal person, right? And so slaves or property taken by people in war are not going to be of interest to the epic readers, you know. So these are women who. Are not are not on the radar screen the way that Penelope would be, you know. But I don't. I still don't think she has very many conversations with other women. I would have to revisit that. I think that's an interesting point. But it is interesting in her internal life. And I guess now we're talking more about the Odyssey. My bad. Yeah, um, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> you know, it's just such. A, I've read the Odyssey and studied the Odyssey and taught the Odyssey, um, and I've not done that much with the Iliad. So I just, it, it's sort of like my touchstone for ancient Greek literature. And it is so interesting how she kind of foils the spoilers, uh, the um, the suitors. She foils them um, by weaving the web and then unweaving it. You know, so yeah, there's some interest in her internal life. But this, the the Iliad is such a male book. It's incredibly male. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like like I said, a martial book. And yet, I mean, again, not in the first two books, but eventually, I, I do think you get you get some interesting stuff. Um, with Helen, if if nobody else, and then the scene with um, with Andromache and Hector before he goes out to battle, I think is 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 tender in a weird way toward Andromache. Uh, tender in a way maybe you wouldn't mm. expect. Well, and then there's the weird role of the female goddesses, right? And <laughs> just the gods and goddesses in general, it, they're gendered, of course, but they're goddesses, so it's hard to know how to read that and you know uh, that's something that i wanted to talk about was just sort of the fickleness of the gods and the goddesses and what you guys made of that and how that operates here 
in the Iliad? What do, what do you see the role of them? You know, what is Homer trying to say about their role or oral history or wherever this comes from? The Greek gods are pretty much Greek men writ large. Mm-hmm. Like they they have the same faults and foibles. The only difference is is they have exponentially more power than Agamemnon or Achilles. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we there's I don't want to say there's no difference between the two, but you see the squabbles. And for lack of a better word, among the Greeks, you have the same squabbles on Olympus. Mm-hmm. But of course, the um, the gods and goddesses squabbles don't come at the ultimate cost of their mortality, and so they have less to lose. And it's just so interesting to me that they don't act in any way that we would say would be associated with somebody who's above um, in any kind of moral sense what's below and i, I right. think that is so fascinating they, they don't really provide any kind of moral standard no yeah and if anything they're just and this is the way i've always been taught that they view the human beings as kind of play things and and, and in some ways you know they'll respond when their when their pride is stroked right when they're kind of praised and 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 oh this is this is my beloved you know Achilles or whatever, so now I'm going to do what he wants, you know, because he came and prayed to me kind of thing. Vain is the word I'm Mm -hmm. looking for. They're very vain. Right. Yeah, there's a sense that human divine relationships are just transactional, but even then it doesn't work all the time. So um, they try to placate the gods, and if the gods are more interested in helping somebody else, that's what they're going to do, and it doesn't matter how many bulls you sacrifice to them. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Once they have their sort of favorites, they definitely pick and choose favorites, not to mention their own progeny, right? There, this is sort of like God ancestry thing that I've never really understood. You know, the half mortal isn't Achilles like half or part? Yeah, God? he's, he's yeah. Zeus. His, uh, I'm sorry, he's uh, Thetis, uh, right? Yeah, that's his mother's, which would be, be I believe, make Poseidon his grandfather. Okay, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, I think so I, they have their favorites. They 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 favor their own progeny in some ways, which you know again is a is a human like behavior, as you were pointing out, Jay. So I don't know. I think the more that I study and read ancient literature, the more I realize how different the Christian conception of the gods really is. You know, of of God um, from these ancient cultures. Well, and even even later in Greek polytheism, you see a move away from all of these gods squabbling with one another to Zeus being more or less the central gods and the other ones do his will. I think you see that pretty clearly mm-hmm. in, in Plato. So um, he's powerful, but he's not moral and he's not good. Right, but I think I think as you as you move further in Greek history, he becomes more moral. I mean, by the time mm. by the time you get to Plato and Aristotle, they're essentially using Zeus as a metaphor. Mm. Uh, but, but yeah, definitely at this point, Zeus is basically in charge of the gods, um, but they circumvent him whenever they get the opportunity to, uh, and and certainly none of them respect him. Mm-hmm. And they have absolutely no interest in ending the conflict between the Achaeans and the Trojans. Though, nor is it clear why they want the conflict to go to on. To continue, right. They're, right. they're inscrutable and, even when we see them um, conferencing with one another. Exactly. So if war and rage is the main theme of the Iliad, then the gods are not trying to stop it, not trying to critique it, not trying to you know help us to see how horrible it is. None of that. Nope. But one could argue that the narrator, the you know the singer of the poem is and i do think that's a very interesting question because my translator caroline alexander i read her introduction which i thought was excellent and she really wants to make a very strong case that that's what this this whole um epic poem is about is about how war how destructive it is how it messes up uh men and makes them wrathful you know this is a nine year now plus conflict between these two sides. And so much of what's going on in book one and book two has to do with that. Like, are we going to end this and just go home and just call it a stalemate? No, we can't do that because my goodness, we would look like losers. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. You can't change horses in midstream, right? Right. Well, 
It's a book about the sunk cost fallacy. Yes! Then there's the idea of fate. Remember when uh, there was a brief point when they were considering going back and they said, no, we can't. Don't you remember before we left, we we went and we consulted the oracle and the snake ate the nine birds. Yes. I wanted to talk about that. We've got to see this thing through because destiny or fate or what have you. How did you read that, Jay? Did you read that as... Uh, it's kind of a justifying move or like an actual prophecy or, you know, how did you read that? Uh, I'd have to, I made a note and then I dropped my book and so it's gone. I'd have to find it again. Is that book, is it book one or two? You know, I was looking for it earlier too and I, I hadn't quite found it. Um, well, do you remember I had, where it I is? Had no, I had no reason to think that it was, it was made up. Okay. I think it's book um, two. It, it fits into the the belief of, you know, the um, if they were birds, it would be an auger. But the belief that animals could help predict the future. I mean, I'd have no reason to think that whoever was speaking was making it up. OK, yeah, it's line. It's line 320 ish and um, book two. The snake eating the sparrows. Mm-hmm. So nine snakes, nine years. Yeah. The tenth snake means tenth year. And this is when the biggie's going to hit, you know, and so we can't give up now. And you know. it is Odysseus speaking, so... Yes, I, and Odysseus, I, oh my goodness, so warmongering. I, I would have no reason to think that he would be... Right, He's he, he has an agenda, he wants the war to continue, but again, I would have no, no reason to think he made it up. Well, mm-hmm. he, he has an agenda, and also, um, to return to the gods, Athena is making him say this in some yes. ways? Yes, yes. I mean, the the way the way fate and free will work in Greek literature is famously tangled. I I, mm-hmm. I once heard, I think it was uh, David Denby has a really cool book called Great Books, where he goes and actually goes through these same books. He goes through the Columbia core curriculum as an adult. Um, oh, I, I've heard. I read a review of that. That it, is it good? It is good. But he he says um, he's talking about Oedipus, and he he says that. The position he ended up coming around to is that the fates make you do the things you would have been inclined to do anyway. So mm-hmm. when you see Athena tell Odysseus to make this speech, you can assume that Odysseus was already inclined to make the speech, and Athena is just kind of pushing him a little bit. I think that's a good interpretation, because I definitely read Odysseus as quite warmongering, and that was something that I wanted us to talk about, which I thought was interesting. Again, I don't know the Iliad very well, and I've studied the Odyssey and taught it several times since the last time I read the Iliad, and I was kind of surprised to see that right out of the gate, he's a warmonger. It's interesting, right, because in the the story we know about him is all he wants to do is get away from the war. All he wants to do yeah. is get home. But then what happens at the end of the Odyssey, right? He, he sails yeah. back out looking for another war. Yeah, and and that's after almost everybody dies, you know, it's, all so these it's, people it's get like, slaughtered. It's it's and, like and, war, war is is completely futile and and stupid, and there's no reason for it. And yet, this is the life that we have been created for. And I was just thinking about how hard of a sell it must have been uh, mm-hmm. when you went around recruiting soldiers to say, yeah, and we we have an auger that says ten years from now we'll fight the big battle, but let's go mm-hmm. ahead and go now. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, I mean, how many people did they get? I mean, at the end of book two, you get a catalog of dozens of leaders, and all of them have their troops. Yes. So, like, people are mm-hmm. signing up for yeah. this. Yes, and I thought well, that was an also interesting choice, too, those lists. I think it goes to show that they weren't just boasting. You know, a few lines before those lists begin, Nestor is boasting that they outnumber the Trojans 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. Or actually more than 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. But isn't it interesting that the poet spends that much time to list out those leaders and heroes? Again, that makes no sense if it's not an honor-based, you know, pride-based mm-hmm. culture. In a, in a way, it kind of reminded me of the book of uh, Numbers or Chronicles hmm. with the long lists of genealogies and names. And you might get a snippet about someone here and there, but other than their name being recorded, it's not a whole lot. Mm, but with completely different purpose, right? In, right. in my view. Oh, right? yes. And that's interesting because you, you are showing, and in the case of the Old Testament, of course, that genealogy uh, is important, that generations of these people are important um, to God. Right. And then in this book, you get all that really matters is these honorable leaders and who's the best. In fact, that's how the, the discourse opens, right? Who's the right. best? Well, 
who's the best to them would be who, well, not necessarily, but who has the better claim to a relationship to a god. Hmm. And who's the most valiant, to, you know, the best fighter. Yeah, who's the most powerful? Because, I mean, who who has a better relationship to a god than Paris? And yet, as we'll see later in the poem, Paris, nobody admires Paris, not even a little bit. <laughs> right? I mean, besides him being an archer, which is a despised position, because you don't actually have to go in and risk very much, at least in theory. Um, uh-huh. I mean, but what is, just out of curiosity, what is Paris' relationship to a god? Uh, Aphrodite loves him. Okay. Yeah. So, so the whole war starts. Um, the, because the, I was going to say, if I'm reading my my genealogy correctly, Agamemnon would be Zeus's great great grandson. I, I can't speak to that. I'm afraid the the genealogies of the gods have always confused me. Yeah, I've got a whole genealogy in the front, and I still can't speak to it. So there, <laughs> it's so complex. Well, I'm reading my old college notes, so. <laughs> That's that's a reason to keep your notes, listeners. I, but anyway. I, I mean, I, I just think in, in terms of the the people who are directly loved by the gods in this book, it's hard to it's hard to find someone who loves a human more than Aphrodite loves Paris. That is true. So I mean, the poem begins in Medius race as all these uh, as all these epics do in the middle of things. So we're mm-hmm. going to get flashbacks to let us know everything that's happened, but. Of course, the original audience would have already known. All of all of this starts because uh, Paris is asked to choose among three goddesses which one is the most beautiful. And like an idiot, he goes along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, so he chooses Aphrodite over Hera and uh, and Athena. And now Hera and Athena both hate him. Aphrodite loves him. Aphrodite convinces him to run off with Helen, who was Menelaus's <laughs> wife. Uh, which violates the law of hospitality, which is Zeus's uh, purview. So now Zeus also hates Troy. It, it's a it's it's a really strange way for all this to begin because I, I think Christina used the word uh, vanity, and that that's the right word. All of this, all of this is the result of divine vanity of of mm-hmm. of people not thinking these women are pretty enough, essentially. Which you know, talk about talk about sexism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've got to be a worthy pride, trophy wife, like isn't it literally a trophy wife or a trophy concubine or whatever? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, well, sex slave. Yeah, and and, and the, the question of how guilty Helen is in all of that differs from telling to telling, and and that's not really something we deal with in the first two books, but I think mm-hmm. we do in three three and four. So you can listen next week to hear how. Uh, the panel then talks about it, but I mean, mm-hmm. so, some people when they tell the story, even in the ancient world, make Helen a victim, and some people make her just the worst human being on earth because she starts this horrible conflict by running mm-hmm. off with Paris. But the, <laughs> other, the other thing I was going to say about that is the whole conflict is based not on the idea that Tro- uh, Troy is a danger to the Greeks, the Achaeans. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a personal squabble. It's a it's a wife leaving mm-hmm. her husband or being taken from her husband, and so the in, these entire countries have to go to war together. Yes, and isn't that yeah. funny that that's how the Iliad begins with another personal squabble? They've not learned anything in ten years. Oh, you mean the, the Odyssey? That's how the Odyssey. Oh no, I mean the Iliad with Achilles and Agamemnon. Oh, oh yeah, right, yeah. And and so have they learned anything? No. But it's, in, yeah. it's interesting because you think of these communal cultures, and in some ways that is a uh, that is an indication that we're dealing with a communal culture. But also, it's very personal. And and um, one reading of the Iliad is it's all about the rise of the individual out of society. And oh, I, really? I, I think there's reasons to think that. Not so much in these first two books, again, but later in the poem, I think you you see that. Um, but also, it's society following alongside the individual. Interesting. You know, this is a, a bizarre but related point. I read a critique of Game of Thrones. The ending changes the way that the stories are told. This one blog blogger wrote, and I can't remember the blogger's name at the moment, and it changed it from a sociological story to a personal one, from a social story to a psychological and interior one, right? So, and that we're in the blogger argued we're not really good and that's why it fails that we're not really good at telling sociological stories and what made game of thrones so interesting was that it was telling that 
right? And I think ancient epics are telling more sociological stories, communal stories, if you will, right? Political stories. Mm-hmm. And then so to say that this is kind of like the beginning of the rise of a of a hero or a more interior tale is very interesting. Yeah. But but it's it's much more conflicted about that than the poem would be if it was written in 2019, which let's just oh, all yeah. thank God it wasn't. No, but I, I do think that it's largely a sociological tale first, and that it has these other interesting sort of personal elements to it, to me, are still subordinated. But even even with that catalog of fighters at the end, which I don't know about you guys, I, I skimmed. Oh, of course. Yeah, yep. <laughs> just, like, just like the genealogies in the Bible, I don't read yeah. them terribly closely. Uh, it's nice to not be a scholar of Greek literature and not have to pay that close of attention to the catalogs. <laughs> but even those catalogs, I mean, these are all human beings' names, individuals' names that maybe would have meant something to Homer's original audience. I suspect they're not real people. I don't know that Homer's original audience would have thought they were real people. I don't know anything about that. But the the fact that they're all given names, at least the captains, that, that tells me that there's something beyond just the society going on here. These are individuals. And you, you see that very clearly in the battle scenes later, um, that every time mm-hmm. somebody dies, you get um, their life story in miniature. Mm. Well, maybe we can go back to, isn't James Joyce the one who was talking about this sort of progression between from myth epic to then lyric and so epic is kind of an in-between step so you name a bunch of names it's to make sure that people aren't reading this as myth oh interesting i hadn't hadn't considered that yeah but it's not quite lyric in the sense of a true personal interior interest yeah do do, do you do you see the characters even achilles is having inner lives no, although one of the points that I thought was very interesting was that the, the text does reflect on his interior interior struggle um, at one point. And it, it stuck out to me because I was so surprised by it. Um, I had just had it marked. Um, oh, it's uh, book one, lines 190. And uh, I'll just read this in my version. So he spoke. This is Achilles. And anguish descended upon the son of Pelus. I don't know how you say that. And the, and the heart in his rugged breast debated two ways, whether he should draw the sharp sword by his side and scatter the men and slay and despoil the son of Atreus, or check his anger and restrain his spirit. You know, at least a sign of an interior struggle, what to do with the Agamemnon issue. And then guess who comes along and tells him what to do? Athena. (laughs) Right. Um, So that, you know, I was surprised by that because I don't expect when I read an epic to get much of that, much of that even. And as you mentioned before, Michael, the conflict between free will and fate and how that works out in ancient literature is very tricky. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess the same goes for inner and outer life, because so much, so many of his emotions are, and maybe this is why we've, we might have trouble liking Achilles. Um, so, so many of his emotions are known to us because he acts on them immediately. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're operating from a conception of literature where the inner world is not important or accessible, how else do you, mm-hmm. how else do you have to show that Achilles is angry other than, um, other than having him enact those emotions. That's true. And of course, choosing whether or not to act on them and in what way is not the same thing as reflecting on his fact of having emotions or even sharing those emotions with us in any detail. Yeah, absolutely. But it's nonetheless interesting that they at least presented as kind of like there was a choice that he had to make, you know. Well, at the same time, to the Greeks, a hero would never attempt to avoid his fate. So true. Even if he, even if he had that, I lost the word I was going for. But even if he had that internal conflict, he would always choose the way that he chose. The cho- yeah, I mean, which uh, would be to preserve honor, I guess. In this case, I guess. But I mean, that's that's one thing that I that I get out of most of of Greek, of the Greek stories is that heroes shouldn't try to, or anyone shouldn't try to avoid their fate. I mean, look what happened with Oedipus when he did that. (laughs) That's not good. Well, yeah, there's just no no way to do it. Fate is fate. Right. 
right? So all of your choices will have been seen from having fit that perspective at some point, right? You'll just look mm-hmm. back and say, there weren't really choices. That was my destiny. And it even goes it goes even beyond their their mortal actions to to the Greeks. Most everyone would end up in Hades. Yeah, um, which which we have the the, the description of in the Odyssey book, right? Whenever well, 10. because Hades is just the afterworld, right? There's no well, like heaven and hell. It's just well, the, where I the mean, dead go. You have the Elysian fields, but mm. the people who get to go there are few and far between. Mm-hmm. So the so only thing the only thing you have to fight for is the way people are going to talk about you after you die. Precisely, which goes back to the sense of pride and honor that we started the conversation with. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And getting your name in an epic poem, right? Isn't that right. really the ultimate reward? Ah, I'm being well, sung about. Right, and that could be one of the reasons why we have that long list of of names is, you know, these people did great things. We might not remember much about them, but we at least remember their name. Mm-hmm. They were which, good leaders. Which um, brings up, you know, I know, Michael, you haven't read much of Terry Pratchett, but it brings to mind one of his books called The Last Hero. You've got one of the characters standing at a monument. No one remembers who it's to or what it's for, but he says he's remembering because someone ought to. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we might have that same idea here where we have a name. They must have done something great in the past, but we, as the as the reader, as the hearer, don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an honor-based culture. You have to do that. You have to be able to say, "My name could be recorded in the book." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the his, the history books, the uh, the poetry, the great epics. There's a kind of gilded nihilism to all that, though, right? It's it's like oh, my course. life my life has no real meaning. I have no hope. For, I mean, when we get to Hades in the Odyssey, you see how bleak it truly is. I mean, it's it's not you're not being tortured, but it's like waiting in a dentist office waiting room <laughs> for all of eternity. So you have nothing to look forward to, no hope that anything in the future is ever going to be any better than it is now. So you may as well kill as many people because really that's what we're talking about, right? You may mm-hmm. as well kill as many people as you can so that people will talk about how great you were after you're dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how else do you make sense of the ending of the Odyssey and all those slaughter? It's just full of slaughter. It's as bad as the ending of of Hamlet. You know, just everybody dies. How else can you make sense of that if it's not this kind of, um, you know, prestige for this, quote unquote, heroic activity of of killing people? So are are we supposed to believe, though, that the poet is above that or is the poet inside of that? Ooh. Yeah, that's a tough question, mm. isn't it? It would be so much easier if we had newspapers from, from that era so that we, we knew <laughs> what normal people thought. Yeah, right, what normal people thought, right. My, I mean, my guess is there isn't, there isn't any um, real distance in the sense that the poet is saying, look how horrible these things are. Um, any kind of ironic distance or... You know, I don't, not ironic, that's not the right word, but just distance from it, Judge a judgmental distance. I don't sense that there is any of that. And yet, I mean, people in the poem call the war into question. True. True. And the, the poet's as responsible for that as he is for the explanations. So I don't, I, I, I think I'm with you that there's not going to be ironic distance, mm-hmm. um, but I think there is a, there's a tension in the poem itself and thus in the poet. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. That maybe a little uh, the tension just also includes the whole idea of this heroic culture, and what happens when you've got this, and then you've got this war that has no end. You know, a true pointless kind of battle. Ten years is a long time for a war, and a lot of people dying. Mm-hmm. Have, have there been outright battles before now? I mean, we get the the battle beginning in book three, I think. Have we have we had out and out battles before that during the Trojan War, or have they just been laying siege to the city for nine years, and now it's time for the fighting to start? The way that I read it is that there's been battles along the way. How else would they have had built up spoils of war to divide amongst themselves? Because when we pick up when we pick up the book, they haven't yet attacked Troy, 
but they're dividing spoils of war. Right. So, but but so there has to have been at least one, at least one. And again, I forget what line it is, what line it's in. But you find that they've spent the last nine years basically attacking Troy's allies and their provinces and things like that, working up to the city itself. Right. Yeah, that's what I was. I was going to say. So. Briseis, for example, my my uh, glossary here says that she's a war prize awarded to Achilles after he sacked Lernessus. So oh that, yeah, mine, mine says Thebes. Maybe those are the same place. I don't know. I don't know, but that's not Troy. So, which I mean makes this even weirder, right? Because if this is well, we know that I'm sorry, we know that Agamemnon had gotten the prize from Troy. Is that true? Yeah. I, I, well, I because the father, the priest father, comes and tries to get her back. And I thought he was Trojan. No, he... Well, he's a, he may have go, he may have been Trojan in the sense that he was under Trojan rule, but we have the same idea of Troy the city as... or Troy the... I don't, I don't want to call it empire, but Troy the, the land. Oh, I see what you're saying. And there's a lot of there's a lot of foreign. Somebody makes a statement about it in book two. I think Odysseus says, you know, if it was just us versus the Trojans, they'd be outnumbered a, a dozen to one. But right. they brought in all these mercenaries, these allies, they're called. Um, but what I was going to say is, um, the fact that they're looting other cities really puts the lie to the idea that this is about restoring what was taken from Menelaus. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is this is an excuse, and and they're enjoying this. They're they're Vikings, you know. They're they're raping and pillaging every city along the way they can, and it gets it gets dressed up in some noble language about justice, but so, so little of what happens in the Iliad seems like anything close to justice to me. Oh, I totally agree. And again, going back to Odysseus as warmonger, you know, I don't know how else you can read it except for that. You know, if you don't let me go and do this, I'm going to just take your head off or, you know, it's just like I'm, a, I'm about war. I want to go out and fight. It just seems like the two things men are expected to do in this society based on based on the Iliad and the Odyssey is fight in wars and, you know, uh, stick as many spears through as many enemy heads as you can and stay home and govern. Hmm. And so both yeah. of those both of those things are about the exertion of power in different ways. Because all the all the men we deal with here, I, I believe, are kings. Right. They're, they're kings right. of different islands. You know, there's no Greeks at this time. It's a it's just a collection of of islanders essentially. Which in some ways makes Agamemnon a first among so-called equals. Like Zeus. Right. And the text has um, a great deal to set up his physical prowess. Uh, his body looks like this bronze, I don't know, I can't remember what it was, but just there's a couple of places where his bulk, in a sense, is, is mentioned. Um, yeah, he was, oh, I just happened to be right open to it. It's book two, line 570-ish, Agamemnon. Uh, with him, followed by far the most men and the best, he himself was clad in blinding bronze, triumphant, conspicuous among all warriors, because he was best, since he led by far the most men. So the leadership, mm-hmm. the power, but also this sort of physical, you know, presence, godlike, uh, um, is the way that he's described. That's interesting. Can you read that last part one more time? Sure. I just flipped away. Okay, and with him, followed by far the most men and the best, he himself was clad in blinding bronze, triumphant, conspicuous among all warriors because he was best, since he led by far the most men. That's interesting. So is he the best because he leads the most men, or does he lead the most men because he's the best? <laughs> in this case, it says since he led by far the most men, yeah. he's the best. But uh, both are implied still. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, one of, the, one of the things Achilles is trying to do in these first two books is to get people not to follow Agamemnon. Correct. And to, to follow him instead. Or even just to, just to sit on the beach, which is what he does, right? He just, he just pouts in his tent while the, while the first battle rages. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> That's right, because he's upset. Petulant, as you put it. I, I've always imagined him sitting in one of those uh, folding beach chairs, drinking a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my babe that Agamemnon took away? Briseis, yeah. Uh, to, to return to her, I meant to ask this earlier, but I didn't. So um, you brought it back up, so I'm going to take the opportunity. Go for it. Do you think he feels anything tender or noble for her at all? They, they use the word love a couple times. Yeah, I made the mistake of seeing the Brad Pitt movie. Was Brad Pitt in yeah, the as Troy, Achilles? Uh, oh, what yeah. a garbage yeah. oh, I will say about so... that movie, uh, the casting is perfect. So, so basically everybody is played by the person they should have been played by in 2004, and yet that movie is just uh, oh, it's a, an open sewer. It's terrible. It is terrible. And yet uh, the image of him and his lover there has stuck in my head. I mean, he, it became about protecting her, not about protecting his own honor, you know, in the film. So that that at least the way I remember it, I've kind of tried to put it out of my mind. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think that the text is giving you any sense beyond a couple. Of, I think he does care for her. I, I think that's clear in, in the text. But, but how much any like, man in, in this oh, society cares for any woman? Exactly. I mean, that's up to right. Right. Spoil. And, and and even if he does love her, that's not his argument to no. Agamemnon for not taking her away. No. His argument no. isn't don't take her away. I love her. His argument is don't take her away. You already gave her to me. Correct. She belongs to me. She belongs to me. Mm-hmm. And it's going to hurt my pride and my honor if you do this. But again, a completely reasonable position in this society, given that this entire war happens on those grounds. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so then we go back to the question of does what does the poet think about that, or what does the poet want us to think about that? And and it's a tricky question. And I, again, not to not to push too far forward, but I think the scene between Priam and Helen, and I think it's book three, but it may be book four. I think that is absolutely key to understanding how we're supposed to feel about the Trojans. And yet, I don't know what it says. So you can listen in uh, next week to hear. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe Victoria and Carla, who are going to be the other panelists next week, maybe they'll be able to straighten me out on that and tell me what I'm supposed to think about it. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting, isn't it? That this just occurred to me, you know, typically in stuff that comes out of America, when there's this us versus them, that it's always demonizing the other. You know, and I don't see a lot of that going on in this in the sense of, oh, the Trojans, they're terrible. They're monsters. We need to go and kill them. They're uncivilized brutes. You know, I don't I don't correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, it's the same society that the Trojans mm-hmm. behave essentially identically to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But isn't that interesting? So there's no justification of that sort. It's just sort of battle for its own sake. Yeah. And it's not even all of the Trojans betrayed us. I mean, I guess they are harboring Paris and Helen. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the actions of this one guy. Yeah. And so there's no effort to kind of demonize the whole society or anything like that. Which is both good and bad, right? <laughs> because it makes the war even more, like, pointless. Uh-huh. But at least they're not trying to demonize the Trojans. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah. It's not like they're ontologically bad. No, right. Which is the way Americans would do it. Not giving us credit for that. I'm just saying that's the way that Americans have always done it. Huh. Right? Uh-huh. So that means that it has to have, that, that the war itself has to have some other value in this kind of honor, shame based culture. We're going to go and accomplish this. Uh, civilizing this nation or taking them over, you know, whatever else. I really think it may just come down to it's good for men to exert power over other men. And and so the the war ends up being a big excuse for that. And this is why mm. this is why Agamemnon and Achilles can't can't get along because if if the purpose of male life is to exert power over other men, what do you do when there's two people who are perhaps equally powerful in different ways? Mm-hmm. Why that really is sad. <laughs> you put a put that plane of a face on it, right? Well, you know, paganism's uh, sad. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. <laughs> I think Chesterton talks about that in uh, in the Everlasting Man that paganism is always sad. 
yeah, he taught, yes. I've read that book. That's so interesting. Um, and it's particularly sad if you're the one who has power over you, if you are, you know, disabled or a woman or uh, a slave of any sort, right? Well, should we, um, uh, since you since you brought up disability, should we talk about Thersites? Is that the, is, is that sure. the, the, the disabled man? I don't know. I remember the name, but Jay, you were saying about that character. Mm, let's see. I think he's in book two. I have two line, line two sixteen written down. Yeah, I was gonna say it's around in mine. It's around line two two ten two fifteen. Well, the line numbers, I should say, are probably gonna be different for all of us. Oh, right. are they? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Well. Oh, because it's different translations. Right, and the the lines that y'all have mentioned to me have been within one or two lines of where it is in my translation, so it's not it's not a huge jump. Um, Thersites. I've got yeah, Thersites. Yes, I've got that around there too. Mm -hmm. So uh, Odysseus, let me let me just read this. Odysseus has uh, has rallied the troops, and it says. they had all just dropped to the, they had all dropped to the sand and were sitting there except for one man Thersites a blathering fool and a rabble rouser this man had a repertory of choice insults he used at random to revile the nobles saying anything he thought the soldiers would laugh at he was also the ugliest soldier at the siege of troy bow-legged walked with a limp his shoulders slumped over his caved-in chest and up top scraggly fuzz sprouted on his pointy head Achilles especially hated him, as did Odysseus, because he was always provoking them. Now he was screaming abuse at Agamemnon. The Achaeans were angry with him and indignant, but that didn't stop him from razzing the warlord. And what's interesting about that is, uh, is he doing anything? Does he say anything that Achilles didn't already say that we're supposed to approve of, more or less, when Achilles says it? And yet when Thersites does it, um, to skip down, uh, Odysseus is able to say, you're nothing but trash. There's no one lower in all the army that followed Agamemnon to Troy. You have no rights even to mention kings in public, much less badmouth them so you, that you can get to go home. What was the question? <laughs> what do we make of that? Well, I mean, I mean we, can't, we obviously are not going to expect this poem to be in favor of people with disabilities. In a martial right. culture where you're, you are what you're capable of doing, a person with disabilities right. is just not worthwhile. Right, and so I think it's it's almost to the point that because he's the one who says it, that's why Odysseus will be contrary. Mm. Because because he ha- he has no honor. The content of what's said is not important, right? What's important right. is the ability of the person who says it to back it up. Yes. That's the way I read it. Hmm. Well, his threat is quite severe. He's, you know, you know pretty much shut up. You, you know, from Odysseus. It says he's, Um, in my translation, it says he's going to strip his ass naked and (laughs) run him out of the assembly. Are we allowed to say that on air? It says that? Strip his ass naked? That's what my translation says. Wow. I I want to get your translation. Yeah, I really enjoy the translation. Mine is very, very, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a day for me to be thinking of vocabulary. It's... Yeah, it's very tame. Mine says, conce- the, well, no, take off the tunic that conceal your private parts. <laughs> conceal your <laughs> private parts. It's very oh, demure. Okay, I, so I find mine says sure. that um, he would strip away his personal clothing, mm-hmm. your oh. mantle and your tunic that cover your nakedness, and thus send you bare and howling back to the fast ships. Well, Michael, you're, you're the winner. Your translation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think so. Like I said, he writes like an action movie, so you can imagine uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme or whoever was a popular action hero at the time that Lombardo was translating in the 90s. But regardless, it's a very personal threat, and it's very um, severe. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a threat about humiliation. Exactly, yeah. Especially it's not. when we consider the poor man's already humiliated, humiliated with his physical state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You you wonder why Thersites came? Yeah, did you guys ever see that? That again, sort of horrible, but also strangely compelling movie Three Hundred that was based on the graphic novel. I yes. did not see it. 
Oh, Michael, you got to see it. It's so interesting. What did you think of that, Jay? Because I kept thinking of the sort of deformed soldier who wanted to fight for Leonidas. And, you know, Leonidas is like, no, you cannot do that. And, you know. I was watching it more for the the cinematics of it. Oh, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. Oh, that's why I was watching it as well. And so it it kind of reminded me of of a live. This is going to sound really strange. A live action Dragon Ball Z. Mm. If you've ever seen that old no. that old cartoon where you have men standing around for half an hour yelling at each other, and then it ends that they rip off their shirts and fight. That's that's, 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 <laughs> that's pretty much what it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. I, I was uh, I was teaching the Iliad once, and we were talking about one of the battle scenes, and a student asked, "How come they all just stand around talking in the middle of the battle?" And uh, another student said, mm. well, talking's a free move. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> as as for why he came, could it be that he was someone's advisor? Because yeah, because there, there is a sense a... that some of these guys can no longer fight, but they, they stand around and tell people right. what they and, ought to do. And my translation, it comes across that he has a, a wide vocabulary and he's a... Um, even Odysseus calls him a fluent orator. So so he does have some capability, perhaps even in, in rousing the troops to to battle. Yeah, that mm. makes sense. Well, I think we're coming up on an hour. Do you guys have anything else uh, you want to say about these first two books? No, actually, we covered all the things that I was interested in talking about as I'm looking at my list here. Jay? I uh, I think we've covered everything that I had. I'm still trying to come up with an answer to how Homer views the gods or what we're supposed to make of the gods. I think if I were forced to come to an opinion on that, I would have to say that he's using the gods for his own for his own literary purposes. I don't think we're supposed to get too much in terms of religion out of it. Sure. Um, which is one reason so, why Troy is such a terrible movie, right? Because they, they take the mm-hmm. gods out of it. They demythologize the Iliad. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, when you can't do that. They make it, a, a, again, a personal and psychological story and not an epical one, right? A sociological story, a political story. And that causes a problem. And I, I think it's so profound to think about the difference between those two ways of storytelling and how, as this one blogger pointed out, Hollywood is absolutely dedicated to the psychological, personal realm of, sto- of storytelling. They don't even know how to tell a sociological story. So so I think I come down on the side that Homer, whoever he might have been, put himself above the gods. Mm. That's that's all that I'm going to say about that, I think. <laughs> well, and it go, it, uh, something else we should probably point out, since this is the first podcast on the Iliad, is just uh, thinking about these ancient epics and their oral quality and how many of the sort of rhymes segments are repeated. You know, mm-hmm. Dawn with its rosy-colored fingers and all of that. Um, and the basic discovery that, that Homer was in some way, whoever he was, and of course there's a lot of debate about that, right? Right. Was collecting these oral... Um, things and the first one to sort of write them down, right? So that's an important move. And there is a kind mm-hmm. of an elevation of the poet, but he's still referring to the muse as the one who is inspiring me, you know? So elevation of the poet, but not to the level that we, of course, see in modernity. Yeah. Right. But the, he, he's there to serve the heroes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But there has to be some sort of... Um, pride some sort of um you know self-regard to be the one to write this down to be the one to you know put it to print to be the collector yeah and and, i mean ultimately and this is a point you see i know in a lot of early modern literature ultimately the poet's the one who's responsible for the glory of the that's right of the of the soldiers so i mean it's true that he serves them in a certain way but they rely on him yeah. Because if the goal of human life is to be remembered. Like the Aeneid, you know, in the sort of founding of Rome kind of story. That's especially the case there, but it's no less true here. Absolutely. Well, Christina and Jay, thanks for uh, being brave enough to come on the first episode of the show. Brave or foolish? <laughs> well, you know, is there a difference, ultimately? No. 
That's what I was just going to say. Uh, next week, the panel, which is me, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, my wife, and uh, Carla Godwin, we will we will be talking about books three and four of the Iliad. So you'll want to read ahead and uh, and be ready for that next week. In the meantime, the core curriculum is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Thanks for listening.